Well, if you're visiting this morning, or if we haven't met yet, my name is Chandler. I am the pastor to students and families here at the church, and this is my uh, first time to preach from the pulpit here at FBA. And uh, so I want to take this opportunity just simply to thank you all uh, for, your, for your graciousness and your kindness and your loving welcome uh, to me and my wife, Molly. Uh, we... We very much appreciate the meals brought to us and the dinners that we've been taken out to and just the time that we've spent with you all and look forward to continuing in that. Uh, we especially appreciate it since we are not from here and do not have family nearby. It has been good to have a church family that makes up for that lack. So thank you very much. Also being my first time preaching here at FBA, uh, call it God's providence or our cruel lead pastor, for, uh, for giving me a text this morning that deals with such, you know, fun topics as hell and sexual immorality. So I do appreciate that. I, hopefully I don't walk away with everyone just thinking Chandler is a raving fundamentalist, but maybe depending on your view of fundamentalist, that's not a bad thing. I don't know. All that to say that like Jude, as he wrote in his letter in verses 3 and 4, I would much rather preach a sermon of encouragement. I would much rather preach a sermon of praise, which is what the name Jude or Judah means, praise. I would much rather do that any time I'm in the pulpit. But like Jude, there are times where we must address difficult things for the sake of the body of Christ. So this morning... The main idea as we deal with this passage is this, and this is the one thing you can take away if nothing else. When false Christians excuse sin and deny Jesus, true Christians must remember that Jesus judges unbelievers, rebels, and the immoral. This text, first and foremost, is a call to remember. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once formerly knew it. And uh, for many of us, it's a good reminder. I know there's a lot of people who have spent time in churches who would much rather not have a reminder, but come to church hearing something new every time. We, human beings love new things. We love the new technology. We love the new home. We love the new this or the new that. But a search for newness is not always a good thing. It would be insane if every church experience, every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night, we were constantly being berated with new ideas and novel concepts. Churches constantly, because of this desire in people, search to make things appear new, new trends and new teachings. But the reality is that the Bible calls us to major on the old things. It is an old book that tells an old, old story. New isn't always better. In many occasions, new can lead to error. It can lead to literal heresy. It can lead to Christian cults. It can lead to what we might call liberal theology. And it can lead to false prophetic movements. New isn't always better. And throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, God calls us to remember. He calls us to memorize his word, to meditate on it, not on just new things, but on the ones that have come before. He calls us to the ministry of remembering. 
He tells us to teach these things to our children. He tells us to remember them annually or even more frequently. So this morning as we come to this text, if you've been a Christian for years and years and years or decades and decades and decades, maybe nothing you hear will be new, and that's okay. It's okay that when we gather on Sunday morning, the sermon isn't always new. In fact, in some cases, it's much better that way. And it's okay that when we show up to Sunday school or Sunday seminar or Wednesday nights, not everything is new. Now, if you're not a Christian or if you're a fairly new Christian, then these things might be new. And that's okay, too. But I hope that if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've had the occasion to read this passage before we read it this morning. I hope that you've had occasion to think about these topics before this morning. So Jude calls us to remember something that we formerly knew. He tells us first to remember the destruction of unbelievers. It says that Jesus saved, who saved a people out of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Did anyone catch that? It said Jesus who saved the people out of Egypt. I don't know if you've gone and read Exodus anytime recently, but I didn't see the name Jesus anywhere in there. So what is Jude talking about? Now Jude was the brother of Jesus. And he didn't think Jesus was the savior just on his brother's conversation. In fact, he went with his other brothers and family, and they went and harassed Jesus and tried to get him to stop his ministry because they were embarrassed by it. They thought he was crazy. And so Jude doesn't believe Jesus is his savior until he has an encounter with the risen Christ. Jesus isn't a good candidate for some co-conspirator to make up this story of Jesus' resurrection. In fact, his life, his conversion is great evidence for the truthfulness of the resurrection. Without a risen Christ, there is no saved Jude. And without a saved Jude, there is no letter, there is no passage that we read this morning. Now Jude, or Judah, as I said before, was a good Jew. He grew up in a Jewish family, grew up near enough Jerusalem that he would have made his annual pilgrimages. And Jude goes back to the central event of the Old Testament. He goes back to the Exodus, the, the climactic moment, the moment for which the prophets would later say, that is how God saves his people. And they would say, someday he will come again to do it once more. This moment that was so important to the Jewish people, Jude reinterprets as being an act not just of Yahweh generically, but of Jesus Christ. He reinterprets the central event of the Jewish people as an event caused by his brother because of his own personal encounter with the risen Christ. It's astonishing that as Jewish people converted to Christianity, they saw Jesus at the center of the Exodus, and they saw his death and resurrection as its reenactment. It has very similar ideas. The death of the firstborn son, the Passover lamb, the idea that God is freeing humanity from slavery. But instead of slavery from Pharaoh in Egypt, this time God frees them from slavery to their own sinful hearts. 
And it's not just the Jewish people, it's not just the Israelites he has opened the doors for now. Now all can believe. Now it's important to note that if you have a Bible in front of you that is not the ESV or a similar translation like the CSV, both good translations, you may very well not see Jesus' name in your passage. And I think it's worth noting why that is just in case that is the case. So if you have a KJV or an NIV or a similar translation, you very well might see, instead of Jesus, Lord. I want to point out, this isn't dramatic. If the proper translation is Lord, then we have not lost anything, because Jude's later going to say the Lord Jesus Christ. He interpreted Jesus as the Lord Yahweh. But I do want to note this. Uh, A translation, the New English Translation, was put together by many scholars. And one of the cool things about that translation is that they heavily footnote all of their decisions on why they translated things. So I want to just briefly read a part of that footnote to help you understand why some of your translations say Lord instead of Jesus. However, not only does this reading enjoy the strongest support from a variety of early witnesses, but the plethora of variants demonstrate that scribes were uncomfortable with it. For they seem to exchange kurios, meaning Lord, or theos, meaning God, for Jesus, meaning Jesus. As difficult as the reading Jesus is, in light of verse 4 and in light of the progress of Revelation, Jude being one of the last New Testament books to be composed, it is wholly appropriate. The reason we pre- uh, choose Jesus in our translations, or at least some translators do instead of Lord, is because the earliest manuscripts we have evidence of support this reading. That was the nerdy part of the sermon for all of you who really care about that stuff, or those of you who may be concerned that when we read this passage this morning, an entirely different word was in yours. And not just a word like bad instead of evil, but a word like Jesus instead of Lord. The good news is the deity of Jesus does not hinge or fall on this one verse. However, I think because of the reading of Jesus, it strongly supports it. Which is utterly fascinating. Because reinterpreting the Old Testament was not a thing that happened in many messianic movements. That they didn't see their Messiah figures, their failed Messiah figures, as God. They didn't deify their leader in the way that the Christians did. No one was claiming that their Messiah was Yahweh from the Old Testament in the flesh. But the early church understood that Jesus was God the Son, who was present with the Godhead in the Old Testament. So that every act of God in the past was understood to be an act, not just of God the Father, but of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. So that we can look at creation, and it says that Jesus, that all things that were created were created through him, and for him, and by him. So that we can reinterpret every event of the past and the future which God has brought about as an event for which Jesus was present present and active. This is astounding. But the concern now is that it doesn't just say that Jesus, who saved a people out of Egypt, saved them. It says that he afterward destroyed those who did not believe, which is a much more uncomfortable idea to consider this morning. If I were to go around uh, this, this the streets here in Springbrook, even on a Sunday morning when most of the Christians are at church, I could probably encounter a few people in the park or out on their front lawns, 
and ask them a few questions about Jesus. And I would not be surprised, even in our biblically illiterate culture, that they would get to the idea that Jesus is the Savior, or at least the Christians believe that. What I'm less convinced I would be able to hear from them is that Jesus is a judge. Because we have so emphasized Jesus as Savior, rightfully we have, but we have not so much emphasized or talked about Jesus as judge. But the truth of Scripture is that he is the judge. Not only is there a final judgment coming, but Jesus is the one who will bring it. We have a really easy time, the culture does too, our movies, our televisions, our our news, talking about Jesus as peaceful, as loving, as kind, as gracious and merciful. And I say amen to all of those things, but not to the extent that we forget that he is also one who hates sin and will judge and will punish. It's much more uncomfortable to talk about Jesus as the Holy One who must punish sin. It doesn't fit neatly into our pictures of Jesus. I remember going into one First Baptist Church in my hometown. My hometown is, if you read it, I don't know what you would say, but you would probably say Poto. We called it Poto. It's kind of like Maryville and Maryville. Uh, we called it Poto if we were from there, and we knew the outsiders because they pronounced the T as a T instead of a D. So there we are. But in my hometown, the First Baptist Poto, I remember being in one of their children's classrooms and seeing a bunch of posters with the title, Jesus in Jeans. It's like denim jeans. And they had all these pictures of Jesus wearing jeans hanging out with children, which is whatever. But they clearly didn't have a firm idea of the Jesus we see in Revelation who comes to judge wearing robes covered in blood. Now, did they? It's not that one is true and one is false. It's just that we need to hold these ideas together. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We see John 5.22 Jesus says, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. We see in Acts 10, 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. The reality is Jesus isn't just the one who saves us, but he is the one who comes to judge us. And before you think this makes him a bad character, or at least a gray or morally neutral character, this makes him the best possible character. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want another fallen human being judging me. The person I want judging me is the one who loved to the point of coming and dying for me. I want the one who loved me so much that judging isn't his favorite thing to do, but is the very thing he wishes he could avoid. I want to ask you this morning, does your theology have room for a Jesus who judges? Does your theology have room for a Jesus who judges, or is he all sunflowers and unicorns? Does your your theology have room for a Jesus who judges? If not, maybe Jesus, maybe the Jesus in your mind is one of your own making. He fits your preferences, your desires, what you want to see. Maybe, maybe he's just a Jesus of misconception, that you have the wrong ideas for some reason because you haven't read the whole Bible and seen the whole picture of Jesus, or because you've majored on the parts that you like where he loves people, but not the parts where he comes to punish sinners. Now, if your theology does have room, 
for a Jesus who judges, I want to ask you this. Does your theology also have room for a Jesus who loves? Do you have room for a Jesus who is called friend of sinners? Who forgives prostitutes? Do you have room for Jesus who redeems and welcomes back prodigals? Do you have room for that Jesus? Because if you don't have room for the Jesus who judges and you don't have room for the Jesus who loves, I'm not sure you have room for the Jesus of Scripture. I'm afraid you may have very well fallen into believing in the wrong Jesus. And Jesus said, it says here in Jude 5 that afterward he destroyed those who did not believe. Now, it says Jesus saved the Israelites. It doesn't mean in a salvific sense, though. If you have an NIV, you probably see the word delivered, which is maybe, for our categories, a better way of saying it. Jesus who delivered a people out of Jesus, because it's not talking necessarily about salvation in the sense we mean after Jesus has come. But what we do see is we cannot rely on a past experience to know our salvation. We cannot rely on having said a prayer when we were five. We cannot rely on having been baptized when we were 10. We cannot rely on walking down the aisle again at camp at 15. We can't rely on these experiences that we have had. I know a lot of us in our Christian lives say, well, I'm just trusting in that decision I made back then or that prayer I said back then or that baptism I had or that church experience I got, and I hope that Jesus has mercy when it comes to my death or when he comes to judge so I can be in heaven, but I don't know with what I'm doing with the in-between. Jesus, Jesus is not just the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. He is not just the God of the past. He is the God of the present and the future, and we must realize that our Faith is not dependent on some work that we did in the past, but it is dependent on whether we trust him here and now. Do we trust the risen Christ in this moment? And it's not to say that our faith is so shaky that we can't have moments of doubt. But it is to say, it is to say that what matters isn't just something that happened in the past like being delivered out of Egypt. But what matters is whether we continue in belief. As Charles Spurgeon said, I don't know how you feel about him, but he said this, and I think this is right no matter what your theological positions are. Perseverance in holiness is the sign of eternal salvation. If we forsake the Lord and turn back to our former evil ways, it will be evidence that we never really believed in Christ and that there was no true work of grace in our hearts. Now that's not to say that Christians are without sin. That's not to say we're perfect. That's not to say when we fail, we don't continue. It is to say that if we have turned our backs on God and went back the direction of Egypt, we're going the wrong way. And it may very well be a sign that we were never in Christ. This morning, I hope that you would heed Jesus' words when he said, believe in the good news. I hope that you don't just believe it like the demons who shudder, but that you believe it, that you have faith, that you trust in Jesus for your salvation, and that you trust that he will be a good and just judge when he returns, and that when he looks at you, he does not see your sin, but he sees his blood covering every one of them. Secondly, we remember the dwelling of the rebels in verse 6. 
Now, here's an interesting uh, passage. The question many biblical scholars want to ask and wish they could answer is, what is Jude talking about? And it's not just Jude who talks about this. It seems that 2 Peter in chapter 2 that Ryan read for us last week also mentions this event. I want to present just three possible interpretations very briefly, so don't, don't worry, it's not going to be anything crazy. Here's the, here's the first possible interpretation. The original fall of Satan. That this event refers to the original fall of Satan that we have possibly referenced in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. The problem is we know about more about Satan's fall from John Milton's Paradise Lost than we do scripture, so I don't know where we really go from there. The second possible interpretation is that in Genesis 6, where it talks about the sons of God, the sons of God refers to angelic or celestial or spiritual beings who have fallen from God, come to the earth, take human wives, and produce an evil race of men that leads to the flood. And that may sound crazy, but ironically, it's the interpretation that has the most support throughout church history. So I don't know what we do with that. And thirdly, it could refer to some other fall of angels that's not written about in Scripture. I'm not going to make a judgment on this morning because I don't have to. I can move on and get to the point that I think Jude is trying to make here. This is the takeaway. That these angels who were privileged, that God gave a position and authority and power to do the things that he wanted them to do, to serve and worship him, these angels wanted something greater than that. They wanted a higher dwelling than God gave them. But it didn't work out the way they thought, because in seeking that higher dwelling, they found one even lower. By seeking greater light, they found themselves in darkness. They gave up being servants of God and became slaves of Satan. They gave up freedom for eternal chains. They gave up their heavenly dwelling for a dwelling of eternal chains and gloomy darkness destined to be thrown into the lake of fire by Jesus, as it tells us in Revelation 20, 10, 14, and 15. And you may be thinking, okay, cool. What do angels have to do with me? But do we not also rebel against God in order to get what we want? Do we not also shun the position God has put us in in our lives to get something better? We, we compromise our ethics in order to climb the corporate ladder. We compromise our integrity in order to be one of the popular kids in school. We compromise who we really are in order to be someone who has fame. We compromise... We rebel against God. We are disobedient to his word in order just to get some money or success. Before we condemn the angels and forget about ourselves, let's remember that we don't have a great track record of this either. The first humans, Adam and Eve, wanted to be like God, it says. So they rebelled against him because they weren't satisfied where with God had placed them. I hope for you that that's not the case. I hope that instead of being content with where God has put you, I hope you don't selfishly pursue something else. I hope you don't, through pride, seek something higher. I hope that you don't rebel against God and his word to do it. Yes, pursue excellence. 
Nobody's saying don't pursue excellence. No one's saying don't be driven. No one's saying don't try to do your best. But don't pursue it out of pride, selfishness, a desire to be the God of your own life, or if it requires rebelling against God and his word. Don't do what the angels did. Don't take the amazing dwelling that God has given you and seek something higher only to end up lower than you could ever go. Today, I would remind you to heed Jesus' words, not just to believe, but to repent, to turn away from the path that leads in the opposite direction of God and turn back to him in Christ Jesus. Finally, we remember the destiny of the immoral. This is in verse 7. He mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is the part where it gets even more fun, right? If you don't know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, I'll try to briefly summarize it without just having to delve in all the details. God tells Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah are wicked and evil and full of sin. So I'm going to destroy them. Abraham says, please don't do it. If there are 50 people there, would you save them? He says, yes, if there are 50 people, I will spare them. And he goes all the way down to 10. And God says, yes, if there are 10 people there who are not wicked, I will spare them. And of course, he does not find 10. He sends two angels. Abraham's relative Lot invites them into his home. And a bunch of men from the city come to their doors because they want to have sexual relations with the angels. And so God through the angels, quickly takes Lot and some of his family, rushes them out of the house, and destroys the cities. Now, before you think Sodom and Gomorrah are just a weird note in Genesis 19, they're mentioned more than 20 times in the Bible. uh, Sodom and Gomorrah weren't something people forgot. They were something that was remembered by the Jewish people and by Christians. And they were known for many sins. They were known for their disregard of the poor, as Ezekiel teaches us. They were known for their arrogance, injustice, bigotry, and yes, also their sexual perversion. And I think there's two things we learn from Sodom and Gomorrah that we can see in our own lives right now. The first one is, sexual sin can consume you. And I just want to make four quick points about this. Again, You saw my three points about the angels. They went by fairly fairly quickly. I'm not sure that will happen this time, but they're just four short points. Number one, according to scripture, homosexual activity is clearly sin. As much as we may not want it to be, it is. We see that, and if you're someone who is trying to study this and know this better, here are some passages to look at. Leviticus 18.22. Also Leviticus 20, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, Romans 1, 26 through 27. These are all passages that clearly teach that homosexual activity is a sin. And if you, if you surveyed our church, I genuinely believe that you would find that most, if not all, of our members are theologically conservative. I think you would find that they're even socially conservative. I think you would find that they believe the Bible is God's word and they believe whatever the Bible says is how we ought to live. But even with that, even with those good qualities, part of the reason I came here, but even with that, I think you might find some who are currently compromising or wanting to compromise on the topic of homosexual activity. It's easier 
to avoid confronting sin. It's easier to avoid defending God's holiness. It's easier to avoid conflict with our family members than to love them. Because telling them the truth is love. And this is hard. And this is a live issue for many of us who have family, friends, and neighbors who identify in some sense on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. So this isn't to say that this is just some trivial idea that we toss around like an intellectual exercise. This, we're playing with live ammo here. We're dealing with the lives and the souls of people we love. But we are not helping them to compromise on this. We are not helping them to pretend it's all okay. Number two, scripture is equally clear that any sexual activity, homosexual or heterosexual, outside of a marriage covenant between one man and one woman is sin. Jesus made this clear when he said that one man and one woman become one flesh in marriage. There is no avoiding this either. And I know many people who, have, who, who would shake their heads at people who are drawn to the same sex. But then would also have to admit of their past infidelities, their past premarital sex, their past having children outside of marriage. And I'm not saying that they're worse than the people who struggle with homosexuality. I'm merely saying that Scripture holds these two things as clearly sinful. Number three, those who find themselves enslaved to sexual sin, including homosexuals and others, need to be loved. We do not need to bash them, mock them, or condemn them. They need us to speak the truth to them with love, mercy, grace, kindness, patience, gentleness, and respect. They need us to treat them not just like a human, but like someone created in the image of God. And the truth is, no matter where you fall on this, we know that the church has failed in this in our past. We know that we've seen in the 20th and the 21st century, churches fail to love people created in God's image simply because they thought their sexual preferences were weird, gross, or inappropriate. But the truth is, as much as we want to be clear on what's true, we want to be clear on how much we love them because Christ died for them too. I would also say that if you find yourself enslaved to sexual sin, you'll probably stay there unless you decide to step out of the darkness. In scripture, we see that sin thrives when it is hidden, when it is kept in secret, and that the way we conquer sin, not just, not just defeat it like Jesus defeated its power on the cross, but the way that we put it to death in our lives is we find someone we trust and we confess our sins, as James teaches us, that we confess our sins to one another. We don't do this in the sense that the Roman Catholics would do this, where we go to a priest and just tell him all our baggage and go say some prayers to make up for it. That's a caricature, but it's still what's going on. But we do it in the sense that we find someone we trust and we say we need help. We don't fight this alone. Finally, number four, and I think this, especially if you've hated everything I've said so far, is the most important thing. Jesus tells us that sexual sin begins in the mind. 
If a man even lusts after a woman, Christ calls him an adulterer. Therefore, we are all in need of the saving grace of Jesus for our sexual sin. Every single one of us. Not only can sexual sin consume you, but what we learn from Sodom and Gomorrah is eternal fire can claim you. Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities in that area exist as a constant reminder of how seriously God takes sin and his ultimate plans to judge it. And this morning, I'm going to say something also controversial, if you found what I said before controversial. Hell is real. It's an uncomfortable truth. Because if hell is real, we also have to deal with the fact that there are people there. And we probably know some of the people who have been claimed by it. It's uncomfortable for us because, again, we're playing with live ammo. This isn't a game. Nowhere is scripture or theology or the Christian life a game. We are playing not with games, but we are living with souls that stand before God. And so we acknowledge that hell is real. And it's not, the answer is not to try to downplay people's unbelief or people's rebellion or people's immorality. We don't do anyone any favors by ignoring the truth of hell or by downplaying the reality of hell or by denying hell. Hell is real and it is eternal. Its inhabitants are separated from God's love. Their existence is one of suffering and their hearts are filled with sadness. And before you say, well, that's just that Old Testament stuff. One, we just read a passage where it's clearly not Old Testament stuff this morning. But before you say, well, that's just people who were misled in the New Testament. Let me remind you that the, the word most commonly used for hell, which is Gehenna, is used 12, time, 12 times in the New Testament. Eleven of those come out of Jesus' mouth. And we can see why. Hell is so terrible a punishment that Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that it's better to enter the kingdom of God maimed with one hand or one eye than it is to be cast into hell. Hell is a bad place. Its punishments will never end. The unbelieving, rebellious, and immoral will unfortunately find their destruction, dwelling, and doom there. But there's hope. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Before I read this, I'll, I'll remind you that if there's any city that comes close to the wickedness and the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, the sexual perversion of those cities, it's probably Corinth. From everything we know about it historically and in Paul's letters. L listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 to this church. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, there is so much hope. Hell reminds us not of a God who hates us, but of a God who loves us, who came to this world and lived a perfect life and died a death he did not deserve, experiencing hell, the punishment of God on the cross for us. 
What we learn in Scripture is not just, not just that the unbelievers go to hell, or that the rebellious go to hell, or that the immoral go to hell. What we learn is all of those people are going to be in heaven too. Not all of them, but all those in heaven will be counted among them in their past. Because some of you, some of, it says, and such were some of you. We all have a past, and we all have a present where we wrestle with God even, but the future gives us so much hope that if we repent and believe in Jesus, our sin will not be counted against us, our rebellion will not be counted against us, our lack of belief will not be counted against us, but instead, we will be counted as those in Christ. We will receive his righteousness. We see the father in Mark 9 who said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. We see the dying thief on the cross. Some of your translations say criminal. Literally, he was a rebel. And he asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom in Luke 23, 42. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. We see the sinful woman, likely a prostitute, who anointed Jesus' feet in Luke 7. And he declared her sins forgiven. Hell is not just something we use to scare people. It's not just something we should fear. In fact, we shouldn't fear it at all. Because those who are in Christ have nothing to fear. Those who are in Christ are covered in his blood and have received his righteousness. Hell presents us with hope. Hell should encourage us to persevere in the faith. It should encourage us to go and tell our neighbor and our friends and our family because we do not want that fate for them. We want them to know that Jesus is God, that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and he was raised from the dead, and all they must do is repent and believe, and they will be saved. Finally, we just acknowledge that although hell is real, Although its inhabitants will be unbelievers, rebels, and the immoral, that heaven will have those same people who have been redeemed by the blood in it. I remember one elder of a church I was at previously used to tell people, and people didn't like this so much because they misinterpreted it, but he said that you can't get to heaven without sinning. And what he simply meant is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. People are in heaven not because they're better than others. People are in heaven because they have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this morning I want to encourage you, if you see hell as something to be afraid of, run to Jesus, repent and believe, trust his person and his work. And if you are a believer, I'd encourage you simply to take this truth. Take the truth of hell. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of what the word of God says, but don't people beat people over the head with it either. Show it to them with gentleness and respect and love because we're not just trying to be right. We're trying to see people made right by the blood of Jesus. Let's pray.